faith. We want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Last week's sermon, Rex, I, I wonder, it's, uh, they were some long, Benny and I were talking about that this morning, of Paul preaching until midnight and then preaching again until daybreak and how preachers today don't need to do the same thing. So we, uh, you know, I, I, I won't wake the dawn with sermons, I'll wake them with praises. How about that? Turn in your Bibles, if you don't mind, over to the book of Acts. We will be in Acts chapter 5 as we continue to work our way through the story that we have there of the budding church and the beginning of how the church uh, kind of pieced together and, and how it all uh, worked out in those early days. Uh, Acts chapter 5. We won't read it, but we're going to cover from verse 12 down through verse 42 and kind of build that story. A couple of questions I have about this passage of Scripture that are a little bit odd, and we'll explore some of those as we go through the story and hopefully draw some application uh, out of the story. So far, we've seen the church begin back in Acts chapter 2 with Peter's great sermon, the baptism of 3,000 in that particular story. We have the opposition to the church begin because over in chapter 3, you have Peter and John who are arrested, and you've got their trial from the end of chapter 3 through chapter 4. And so we see a lot of the uh, early opposition to the church, to the, the teaching about Jesus particularly, and we see their response to it. Then we see in chapter 5, not uh, difficulties with those outside the church, but they started having difficulties with those who were a part of the church, with Ananias and Sapphira, and they're lying, and they're lying about their contribution there in the beginning of chapter 5. Well, verse 12, in a sense, takes us a little bit backwards. Uh, they, they start facing again opposition to the Jewish leaders there. The reason they face that opposition is because by this point, and when we don't really have a timeline to work off of, uh, I, I always try to look that up to try to piece together the story in my head, and the estimates I had were, we're somewhere between 33 and 37 AD. That's a pretty wide range considering the church began pretty much between 33 and 37 AD. So, we, you know, we, we have a... a, a not great information on how long the church has been around. My guess, just based on the story, and there's no reason to accept this as the right answer, these are only Adam's assumptions, but we've, we're probably around a year, year and a half. Uh, it, it might be shorter than that, it might be longer than that, but it has not been very long since the church began. But the church is known for its works. You see here in verse 12, many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. We see people joining their numbers in increasing numbers. So the church is growing. The public opinion of the church is, is great. People, although they're a little bit 
hesitant to get involved with this. And again, you got to remember, this is not a whole new religious group that has popped up. As far as the public is concerned, this is a new sect of Judaism. These are Jews who believe the Messiah has come. Uh, that, that, that's really the way the public opinion is at this point. Uh, the, as far as the non-Jewish leaders, this is just more Jews acting out and doing their thing. As far as the Jewish leaders are concerned, this is a group of people who believe the Messiah has come and is, was in the person of Jesus. And so people are hesitant to accept Jesus as the Messiah, but that doesn't change the fact that they recognize this new Jewish sect, they do good things. And they're involved in, in healings, they're involved in people's lives, they're doing many wondrous signs, and, and there's really no explanation for that other than they are being blessed by God. To the point to where people even start coming to the apostles the way they used to come to Jesus. Uh, and, and even maybe in a greater way. Uh, notice what it says here. Verse 15, as a result, they carried the sick out into the street and laid them on. Good. We're not told that when his shadow kind of breezed across their feet that all of a sudden their lameness was healed. We're not really told. What we are told is the public opinion of the church at this point is that this is a group of people who can do amazing things. It does say in verse 16, a multitude came together from towns and they brought their sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits and they were all healed. So when they brought the sick and they brought the, uh, the, the, the burdened to Peter and the apostles, those people were healed. And not just some of them. They didn't pick and choose. They didn't go, well, you've got money and you don't, or uh, you look like you would help our reputation and you don't, or I know about your history, so we're not going to heal you. It was anyone. You brought anybody to Peter and the apostles, and they would lay hands on them and heal them. And that is the reputation of the church in these early days. They were willing to step in and do the work of bringing healing. That reputation, that good favor that they had among the public, led to jealousy. And so the Jewish leaders were filled with jealousy. We know that they, they arrested the apostles. Uh, and, and in this particular story, verse 18, it doesn't single out Peter and John. It says they arrested the apostles and put them in a public jail. They arrested them, and they, they removed them from the public. Well, an angel came that night and set them free. This is not the only time this will happen, but it seems to be a, a pretty important time. The angel comes in in the middle of the night, sets them free, and gives them this command. Go and stand in the temple and tell the people about this life. I love that commandment, that commission. It's just interestingly worded. I put it up here in several different versions for you. That's the, the Christian standard Bible I just read. Tell, people, tell the people about this life. 
the English Standard Version says, tell, or speak to the people all the words of this life. Uh, the ICB, the International uh, Children's Bible, which is actually one of my favorite versions of the Bible, says, tell the people everything about this new life. Or the New American Standard, uh, tell the whole message of this life. I, I, I love that. Notice, it, it, it's worded differently. We're used to the idea of the term gospel, right? Uh, we're used to the idea of, of uh, I forget the term on I just don't, I, my, the guys back there are like, get in the middle there. So my microphone's not working, so I'm going to take it off. That way I remember to stand in the middle. Uh, that's important. All right, so what we have, what we're used to hearing when we hear the word of God talked about is the gospel. In the gospel, when we hear that term, we tend to focus on Jesus, right? Jesus is the center of the story. And I, I don't think this would disagree with that. We're going to talk about that more at the end of the lesson this evening. But I love that the way the angel puts it here for us is that go... Tell them everything about this new life. Go tell them what they need to know in order to live the life of a Christian, if we were to word it differently. Go tell people about the, the hope, the joy, the peace, the goodness that comes with belonging to Jesus. Go tell people what being a part of this kingdom really is like. That's what you go out there and you proclaim. I, I just think that's such an amazing description of what the job of a Christian is when we're out there talking to people about Jesus. Is it's not only Jesus, but it's what Jesus accomplishes and changes for you and me. It's that our life as Christians is different than life not as Christians. Kind of harkens back to my lesson this morning a little bit, doesn't it? Go tell people about what it means to live a holy life. That, that's what they did. It says, at daybreak, they went to the temple and began to teach. Now again, be astonished at the courage of the apostles. They didn't say, okay, well, uh, we're going to take a couple of days and we're going to find some room off the beaten path and we'll try to, you know, covertly spread the message that that's where we are delivering the message because we don't want to stir up trouble. We don't want to face more opposition. We don't want to have to deal with the Jewish leaders anymore. They got out of jail and at daybreak, when the sun's first rays came over the, uh, the, the horizon, they were in the temple meeting the very first people that showed up and telling them what it meant to live for Jesus. I love that. They didn't shy away. They weren't worried. And the Jewish leaders apparently get up a little bit later than the apostles do. And they go and they look in the jail and all of a sudden these men that they were supposed to talk to today aren't there. And so they got to arrest them again. Because these men aren't hiding. 
They didn't run away. They didn't go, okay, well, we're going to leave Jerusalem for a little while and let things calm down, and we're going to go out to Bethany for a little bit. No, they are not just on the streets of Jerusalem, but they are in the, at the temple in Jerusalem. They weren't hard to find. And so they come to them, and they arrest them again. They convene the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and they send to the jail. Well, they're not there, so then they have to arrest them, and that causes a problem because uh, they're, you know, they're a little bit nervous about this group of men because they are so popular and they are so enjoyed and people believe in them and what they're doing so much that they're scared to forcibly arrest these men. But the men show up before the Sanhedrin. How do you think that happened? They agreed to go. Okay, y'all want us at the Sanhedrin? We'll, we'll come to the Sanhedrin. They go, and, and the response they get from the Jewish leaders is, didn't we strictly order you to stop teaching this? And then I love this next part. You are determined, in verse 28, to make us guilty of this man's blood. Anybody else find that a little bit ironic? That just a year or two ago, if my timeline is correct, they cried out to Pilate, his blood be on us and our children forever. And now they're whining about how Peter and John and all the apostles are blaming them and claiming they're the ones that are guilty for the shedding of Jesus' blood? Well, it's interesting to me that the apostles, they're not vacillating. They're not changing. They're not changing their message. They're not changing their answers. They're not changing uh, their explanation as to why they are doing the things that they're doing. And so he replies in verse 29, that ever-popular Verse of scripture, didn't we already tell you we must obey God rather than man? I added the didn't we already tell you part because they've already told him that, right? I mean, multiple times at this point. We must obey God rather than man. I love this story. And one of the reasons I love this story is because I see my failings in this story. How often is it that I've not shared the message about this life because I was afraid without any reason whatsoever that the person I was supposed to speak it to wouldn't want to hear it? And so I just didn't share it. I, I used excuses like, well, it's just not the right time. Or maybe, maybe we just need to, I need to have a couple of other conversations with them first, knowing that this conversation probably wasn't going to come back up. Where I let my own fear, my own timidity, my own uh, lack of enthusiasm shut me down. 
And yet, here are the apostles standing before the Sanhedrin. And not just some of the Sanhedrin, like Jesus stood before, but the whole council has gathered together to handle this. All of them are there. And their answer is, yeah, we've already given you an answer. We're going to teach this message no matter what. We're going to share this message. They go on to say, the God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Ouch. What an accusation. You know, they're complaining that you, you're trying to make us guilty of this man's blood. Notice, they didn't back off from that. They didn't say, well, you're, you're kind of misunderstanding our point. We're, we're, not, we're not blaming you per se, but just a, a general state. No, look at what they said here. The man you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. They asked for the guilt of shedding Jesus' blood. Peter gives it to him. He doesn't back off. Then he goes on to say, verse 32, we are witnesses of these things. Now again, that's important. Because what are they doing? They are standing on trial before the Jewish council that can have them arrested forever or take them to Pilate for blasphemy or, or do any sorts of numbers of things. They, they could take them out and stone them. They could do all sorts of things. So they use a, a, a court term. We are witnesses. We are the evidence that what we are doing is the right thing to do. That kind of courage, it's astonishing to me. Especially in the light of how, how far I fall from that. Well, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill him. Anyone shocked by that? They wanted to kill him. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel steps up and defends them. Not them per se, but defends what should happen. He, he's a man known for his wisdom. He was a man known for his ability to teach and his, his knowledge of the word of God. He was Paul, Paul's own teacher, which begs the question, it's possible Paul is here. He's not mentioned, but he is definitely involved with this group of men because Gamaliel, his teacher, is there. And we know Paul was rising up in the ranks of the Jewish society, and it would make perfect sense if he were there. He's not mentioned now. 
But Gamaliel basically says, we've had uprisings before. We will have uprisings again. God has always worked this out. If this isn't from God, God will stop them. If this is from God, we best not be fighting against it. There are a couple of interesting pieces here in Gamaliel's argument. For instance, it mentions here, verse 36, some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. Well, I don't know if you've ever studied these extra examples. Thutis, uh, this is a quote from Josephus and his antiquities. It came to pass while Cuspius Fadus was procurator of Judea, that a certain charlatan by name of Thutis persuaded a great part of people to take their effects with them and follow him to the Jordan River. For he told them he was a prophet and that he would, by his own command, divide the river and afford them an easy passage over it. Many were deluded by his words. However, Fadus did not permit them to make any advantage of his wild attempt, but sent a troop of horsemen out against them. After falling upon them unexpectedly, they slew many of them, took many of them alive, and they also took Thutis alive, cut off his head, and carried it to Jerusalem. So we have a, a, a non-biblical account of Thutis' life. And here's where it gets difficult, though. According to Josephus, this event doesn't happen until between 44 and 46 A.D. Well, we've got Gamaliel referencing this as something that happened a short time ago, back in probably, I'm guessing, 35 A.D., around 10 years earlier. Or Judas the Galilean. Here's what Gamaliel says. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. Well, again, Judas the Galilean was a man from around 5 B.C. So, not after Thutis, but well before Thutis. Uh, he rallied men not to engage in the Roman census, which is, uh, oftentimes dated to the same time of the census that brought about Joseph and Mary going to Bethlehem, that same census. Uh, and he told them even to burn the homes of those who did engage in the census, being a, a, a very zealous Jewish man. Uh, he was the head of what's called the fourth Jewish sect, and Josephus actually blames him for being the reason why, or at least the instigator that started the process of Rome coming in and planning to destroy Jerusalem uh, later. Uh, there is no record of Judas being killed in secular records by Josephus or anybody else, but we do know his sons were executed around 46 A.D., again, about 10 years after this story with Gamaliel. So how is that? How is it that Gamaliel is, is he prophesying? Uh, I, I don't think we would argue that. Uh, maybe, maybe what's going on is, is uh, we've got different stories, like similar stories, like there was another man named Thutis 
who came before this point. Thutis isn't an uncommon name. And so maybe there's another man named Thutis who, who got up an uprising years ago, and, and that's what's going on. And we have another man named Judas the Galilean who, again, Judas was a common name, and so uh, there could be multiple occasions of riots that happened, and they just happened to carry common names. Uh, maybe, I'm not, not saying that's not possible. Uh, I, I'll be honest, my own personal take, whether you want to agree with this or not, uh, is that none of the apostles, nor Luke, who writes this story down, was in the room with the Sanhedrin when they had this conversation. And so what they're told is, there were, uh, Gamaliel basically got up and argued, there have been other uprisings of people who claimed to be the Messiah, or people thought were the Messiah, and, and they were overthrown, and, and if this isn't from God, it'll also be overthrown. And so he gets the main idea, and then he takes two accounts that are well-known and throws them in there as examples of what Gamaliel likely had said. Uh, and, and that, again, that, that doesn't erase the concept of inspiration. It might erase maybe some of our hang-ups about inspiration, but it doesn't change the message. Gamaliel's message is this. There have always been fakes. And we've never had to worry about them. God always takes care of them. But there will also at one point be a real. And do we really want to be fighting against that if this is that? See, one reason I like Gamaliel, it's driving me nuts not to be able to move out from behind this microphone. So one reason I like Gamaliel is this. It seems to me that Gamaliel was willing to look at the evidence and consider the truth. We have no record that Gamaliel ever became a Christian, but here is an example of a man who, who recognizes these men, these apostles, they are doing things we cannot explain away. They are doing many signs and wonders among the people. They are healing the sick. They are casting out demons. They are doing things that we cannot explain away. If that power comes from God, who are we to stand against it? If it doesn't come from God, let God take care of it. I, I love that answer. Not only is it an answer of wisdom, but it is an answer that preserved these apostles. I believe it is an answer and a clue as to what we learn about Paul in a few more chapters. And we'll come to that in a few more months. So, the leaders agree with Gamaliel. I mean, it's hard to argue with that logic, so they, they have them flogged. You know, if you're going to arrest somebody, you've got to do something to them. So they have them flogged, and then they have them released. But that in and of itself tells us something else about the apostles. They rejoiced that they suffered. It says here, after they, verse 40, called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and release them. Well, that's the same order they've given them before. Do you think they think the apostles are, are going to keep the rule? No. They've already broken the rules before. They're going to break the rules again. 
But notice what it says about the apostles in verse 41. Then they, the apostles, went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Hold your place there and flip over to the book of Philippians with me real fast. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. You skip over to chapter 3, verse 8. More than that, I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and to know the power of his resurrection and to know the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Again, I see my failings in this. Do you? Not only were these men of great courage, men who were willing to stand up to opposition, men who were willing to stare punishment and death in the face, but they weren't men who complained about it. They weren't men who who got frustrated or or who, who got discouraged by the by the bad treatment they received. They were men who rejoiced because they were counted worthy to share the stripes of Jesus. I find that amazing. How often is it that our prayers center on ease of life and our prayers center on peace and our prayers center on rescue And their prayers centered on thanksgiving for suffering. I have a hard time answering for that. They went on, says every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They went to large gatherings there in the temple in the colonnade. They went from home to home. They gathered. They talked about Jesus. They talked about the good news. They talked about what it was like to live this life. They encouraged one another. They built one another up. They put courage into one another. They talked about the suffering they could endure, and they didn't despise it. That's a church. That's what the church is. The church is not an organization of ease and comfort. 
Because if it is, then that's an organization that's focused on you and me. The church is an organization that is focused on mission, focused on who else needs to be taught, that focuses on living a life where we count suffering as joy because we suffer with our Lord. That is so very different than what I have preached in the past. They continued to teach and proclaim the news. Just as a little added exercise this past week, I, I went through the book of Acts and I looked up all the places where it talked about the things they proclaimed. And, and I'll, I'll pop them up here for you kind of quick. Uh, they proclaimed the resurrection of the dead, the good news that Jesus is the Messiah, what we just read there in verse 42. They proclaimed the Messiah. They proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. They proclaimed Jesus. They proclaimed the good news of peace through Jesus. They proclaimed good news about the Lord Jesus, a baptism of repentance, the good news of the promise made to our ancestors, forgiveness of sins. They proclaimed good news, the word of the Lord. They proclaimed the way of salvation. They proclaimed that this Jesus is the Messiah. They proclaimed the word of God, the unknown God, profitable things were told over in chapter 20, verse 20. And then at the end of the book of Acts, they proclaimed the kingdom of God and teachings about the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how much of that focused on Jesus. And then some of it focused on living for Jesus. That's what we proclaim. That's our duty. That's our job. That, that's what we are supposed to be focused on. The, that is the message we are to be shouting from the rooftops. That is the message we're to be sharing with our children. That is the message that should be filling our hearts and our minds. That is the message that should bring us joy. I'm, I wonder quite often, and, and I wonder this typically about myself, but I'm going to speak of it more generically so maybe you can think it about yourself too. What if the 12 apostles were 12 of us in this room and we were standing in front of the Sanhedrin, would the story read the same? Would we be worried about our children at home? I would. We don't know if the apostles had children. We know many of them had wives. It's not in any way astonishing that they might have had children. But they were more concerned about the things of the kingdom, weren't they? I wonder if, if we were the twelve and we were standing before the Sanhedrin and they said, Hey, we asked you to stop preaching this. Would we not have found a private place where we could go and do it in privacy, if at all? Because we wanted to be compliant. Because we wanted to be uh, seen as peacemakers and as easy, get, easy to get along with. Would we be those who would be willing to stand in front of opposition and those in authority and say, you murdered him on a tree. Like Scott put on my Facebook post, his thing that astonished him about Jesus is that Jesus was willing to say something that was hard to hear. I butchered what he said. He said it better than I do, which is not surprising. But 
Uh, I mean, that, that idea of Jesus was willing to, to say the things that were hard to hear, so were these apostles. What about you and me? Are we willing to share the good news despite the opposition? Are we willing to look forward to and rejoice in the suffering? Or would we cower away? See, I wonder those things about myself. And not just because I'm a preacher, but because I'm a man of God. I belong to God. Do I truly live as if I belong to God? That's the question I ask myself. And looking in that mirror, I, I don't know that I always like the answer that stares back. What about you? See, these apostles, what made this early church grow and work and blossom and bloom the way that it did was because these apostles were so holy given to the mission, that they would say what needed to be said and endure what needed to be endured and do it with joy and excitement and enthusiasm because it meant they were sharing with their Lord the things the Lord had already done for them. I pray that that's you and me too. It's an incredible story in the book of Acts, isn't it? I hope it will challenge you to think about how very dedicated or if you've got a lack of dedication to the very work God has called us to do. I hope we will see ourselves in the apostles more than we see the contrast. And I hope that when we're prepared, God will give us an opportunity to stand for him courageously. That's a hard thing to hope for because on the other side of that is rejoicing in the suffering and the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus. But I hope you're willing to hope that with me. If you're not a child of God, it, it's, it's, a great, it's a great walk. It's a great path. It leads to heaven. And we want you to be a part of that. We want you to experience and enjoy heaven with us. I tell you, we also want you to join us on the battlefield. We want you to stand with us when it means we can stick up and speak for Christ. We need more workers in the kingdom. We need more workers in the field. We need more soldiers in the army. We need more, uh, more of us being willing to stand up to the world and say, hey, Jesus is worth it. We want you to join us in that battle, in that work. So I encourage you, if you're not a child of God, become one. For the rest of us, those of us who belong to Jesus, I, I ask you to do a little bit of thinking this week. Where are you at? What are you willing to endure? And I know the easy answer for us to often give when we're asked that question is, well, you know, you don't know till you're in the middle of it. Thank goodness I'll never be in the middle of it. I want you to go beyond that. Think of some scenarios. How would you stand up for Christ if we were told by law we could no longer assemble? 
how would you stand up for Christ if, by law, it became unpopular to be a Christian? Because that's becoming more and more true. How would you, as a Christian, stand up if you had a neighbor who despised you for no other reason than they knew you believed Jesus was Lord? Also very possible. How would you stand up if you lost opportunities at work because you couldn't be there on Sundays? Or because you were dedicated to a, to a God and to creation and you had a job that, that wanted you to be dedicated to scientific theology and thinking? How would you as a Christian stand up to a neighbor, a co-worker, who you knew needed the gospel and that you were the person in place to give them that gospel, but you were scared to do it? How will you act more courageously for Jesus? Ask yourself that. And then try to develop that. It's a great opportunity he gives us to serve him. I, I hope you will determine to do so just like the apostles did here in Acts chapter 5. If you're not a child of God, we encourage you to become one. If you are a child of God, you need some prayers. We want to help you and pray for you. Whatever your need is, please come forward as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's Word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.